0: The Word of the Lord comes to us this morning from 1 Samuel 2.11 through 4.1a. And that grates on me, and I hope it does you as well. It's a testimony that we live in a fallen world, that sections of Scripture can be improperly divided by chapter. Whenever you see the chapter and verse divisions in your Bible, Those do not come from the Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind. Those were added later and oftentimes fallibly. So whoever chapterized 1 Samuel should have just extended chapter 3 a little bit farther. But nevertheless, it is what it is. And uh, we will go through 4.1a to finish this section. We've already read uh, most of chapter 2, and we're going to read now for the public reading of Scripture chapter 3 through 4, 1a, uh, and so would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I forgot to mention, if you have a Bible like this one, we'll be on page 227, 227, beginning in 1 Samuel 3, verse 1. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Let us pray. Father, may we behold your glory through your Son, as it is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. And to that end, we pray for the blessing of the Holy Spirit, knowing that if earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will you, our Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so may your Spirit be present with us today to accomplish all that you purpose for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On January 15, 2009, US Airways Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia Airport in New York City. And as all airplanes do, it picked up speed on the runway, It became airborne, began its ascent, but shortly into its flight it ran into a flock of geese and tragically the engines of the plane were damaged. The captain was Chesley Sullenberger and you can look this up online if you'd like to listen to his conversation with air traffic control that lasts about a minute and a half after his engines failed. Captain Sullenberger speaks back and forth with air traffic control, and they're trying to direct him back to LaGuardia first. He says he can't make it. Then they try to get him to another uh, airport where he can find another runway to land. And again, he says he's not going to be able to make it. And in the cool captain voice that you always hear come over the intercom, when he says, fasten your seatbelts, folks, the exact same tone, Captain Sullenberger said, we're going to be in the Hudson." And that's what they did. The pilot landed the plane right on the Hudson River and then ran back through the cabin twice to make sure every single passenger and crew member was able to get off before he was the last evacuee. And the rest, as they say, is history. I love that story about a man who had such command of a situation, such courage and selflessness in a moment, in a story that had such a happy ending. But I use that illustration this morning not to promote Captain Sullenberger, but rather just to picture a plane that's just getting off the ground and then begins to sputter and then eventually descend. Because when I read this section of scripture about Israel and the condition of Israel at this time in its history, it reminds me of that airplane. It makes me think that God had made such grand promises to Abraham regarding his earthly descendants. And indeed, he had brought many of those promises to fulfillment. He had powerfully delivered them out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness and given them the promised land. And so everything is getting off the ground just as planned. And yet, when you get to the period of the judges, where this time is set, You wonder if it's all going to crash and burn before it even really gets that far into its ascent. God had promised to Abraham's descendants more than just a nation and a land. He had given them those things by now, but He had also promised them that His descendants, as a nation in that land, would have peace and security and would be a well-ordered people. To this point, that has not happened. To this point, they've been overrun by enemies. If you read the book of Judges, they're constantly being attacked and oppressed by enemy powers. You don't see any centralized authority in Israel at this time. As the, the book of Judges ends, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the worship of the people is corrupt, Their lifestyles are corrupt, and sin is running rampant among the people of God. It's like an airplane that is beginning to sputter as it is just now getting into its ascent. And that really raises the questions about God's faithfulness. Is God going to keep His promises to Abraham, or is He going to let them fail? What we see in this passage is that God is tenacious. God is stubborn, if you want to put it that way. God is a God who is patient, who is quietly working at all times, even when it doesn't look like it on the surface. God's work continues. His word is sure and his promises will be fulfilled. If you've ever been discouraged in faith or perhaps are discouraged this morning, I hope that this passage will be one you will look to to remind yourself Always to be looking for signs of grace in those hidden locations. Those places where we're not accustomed to looking. Always be expecting that God is doing something, even if you can't see what it is at the time. Because our God is a God who does not let go. He fulfills every single promise He makes. And as we work through this passage today to see that tenacity of God put on display I'm going to make two points from the text, one that is mainly in chapter 2, one that is mainly in chapter 3, and then a third point uh, that is uh, an application for us from uh, this whole text today. So the first truth, uh, the first two, by the way, are truths that are about Israel and God's promises to Israel that He had made to Abraham. And so the first truth we learn about God's promise to Israel is this, God's holy place will not be defiled. He will have a faithful priest. God's holy place will not be defiled. He will have a faithful priest. There's been a lot of discussion this week about sermon plagiarism, and I just want to point out that you can be absolutely sure I did not plagiarize this because there's a semicolon in my sermon point. No one else in the history of the world would ever do that. I give Lee and Tom a hard time about their sermon points. And then you you live long enough, you become the villain yourself. And that's that's what I am here today. So God's holy place will not be defiled. He will have a faithful high priest. So again, we are in the period of the judges. There's no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. The most influential institutional leader in Israel at this time is the high priest Eli, and he's leading Israel, he's even called a judge, he's leading Israel from Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, the ark of God is, and his two sons are priests with him, and their names are Hophni and Phinehas. According to chapter 2, verse 12, Hophni and Phinehas did not know the Lord, and because they did not know the Lord, their behavior was Rampant rebellion against the holy law of God. They despised God. And you see that specifically in their worship practices and the way that they corrupted not only themselves, but even the the whole worship system in Israel. And they would do that in particular through two practices that are mentioned in the text. Whenever a worshiper from Israel would bring an animal to offer as a sacrifice to the Lord and specifically if it was a peace offering, the animal would be slaughtered and then the meat would be divided up and the fat portions, now we're accustomed to to cutting the fat off of meat, a lot of us are today, but when you read that in Scripture, when you read about the fat portions, you're actually reading about the good stuff, the part that anyone would have wanted and that's God's portion. God receives the best, so the fat portions would be cut off and burned up on the altar to be given to the Lord as an offering. And then the rest of the meat would be divided. According to a law in Leviticus 7, the priests could take the breast and the right thigh of that animal, and that was their portion to eat. And then the, the person who brought the animal could take the rest of the meat and prepare it and share that with his family at the the site of worship, and there he would eat together. It was like he was eating a fellowship meal with the Lord. He was celebrating God's covenant with him and God's mercy to him through this fellowship meal that had been offered through his peace offering. So what did these young priests do when this would happen? Well, they do two things. One, when the animal was being carved up for its different purposes they would come and demand the fat portions for themselves. They'd say, give me that portion. And of course, the average layman in Israel even knows uh, that portion belongs to God. Don't take that part. Uh, Let's burn that first, then you can have whatever you want. But if that was the response, the young priest would say, no, give it to me or I'll take it by force. So he's threatening worshipers with mafia-like tactics to take From the sacrifice, what belongs to God alone? In addition to that, when the man who brought the sacrifice is preparing his own portion for himself and his family, boiling the meat to prepare it to eat, one of the young priests would come with a three-pronged fork and jab it into the pot and pull up whatever came out and claim that as well for himself. And in that way, he was robbing from the worshipers, robbing from their fellowship meals, stealing from God, stealing from God's worshipers, threatening force when doing so. They held the Lord's offerings in contempt. In addition to that, it's mentioned uh, in verse 22 that Hophni and Phinehas would also take to bed women who were serving at the entrance of the tabernacle. Not only was this practice showing utter disregard for their own marriages, we know at least one of them is married, probably both of them are married, but it's showing utter disregard for the women that they're taking advantage of and absolute disregard for the holy place. These are men who despise God. They treat the holy place like it's an unruly frat house. I just want to point out one thing before we move on here. This is one passage among many in the Scripture where sexual immorality is tied to a failure to honor God as God. That connection is made many, many times. We must fear God. And so if you are tempted at any moment to go, perhaps too far with your boyfriend or girlfriend or if you are tempted toward inching toward betrayal of your marriage vows because you're starting to have some unwise conversations with a coworker or if you're tempted to pull out your device and scroll for some kind of image or video that would not be appropriate to see remind yourself to fear god Remind yourself that it is the fear of the Lord that will kill that impulse in you. And stir up and nurture within you the fear of God to fight against sexual temptation. Now, to his credit, Eli rebukes his sons. He does not like what he's been hearing about them, and he tells them, and in verse 25 of chapter 2, he even makes a very shrewd theological point. He says to them, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And the point is, if you've got two men who are in a dispute with each other, say one has sinned against the other, that can be decided by a higher authority. That can be taken to the Lord and in the form of a judge, for example, an authority. He can mediate in that dispute. But Hophni and Phinehas are not doing that. They are defiling the holy place itself. They are, in a sense, taking on God directly. And if you take on God directly, what higher power is there to mediate for you, to arbitrate for you? There is none. You're going to lose that battle. God is going to crush you eventually if that's where your heart is toward Him. And so Eli is warning them, you do not have a mediator in this situation with your high-handed rebellion against God. But then notice the outcome of his warning at the end of verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now that's an interesting verse. We, we have to make sure we get the order right there. It doesn't say that because they did not listen, it became the will of the Lord to put them to death. It actually says the reverse. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death, therefore, they did not listen. They did not repent of their sins. Now, if that's what the author of 1 Samuel is telling us, it indicates at least two things about repentance. Number one, repentance comes from the Lord. Repentance is God's doing in us. Otherwise, how could the will of the Lord in this passage be that which determines their repentance or lack thereof? It must come from God. But then second, God is not obligated to give the grace of repentance to anyone because it's grace. Grace, by definition, is not obligated. And God is choosing to hand Hophni and Phinehas over to their hardness of heart. Give them over to their sin so that they are beyond repentance. In His justice, God will do this. And it is a frightening thing uh, to fall into that kind of judgment from God. Eli rebukes them, but Eli himself is not free of blame. Yes, he protests their bad behavior, but he actually did not stop it. He did not step in as high priest and defend the holiness of the holy place. That was his obligation. He was the one who was finally charged with making sure God's dwelling place would not be defiled, and in this he failed, presumably because he was too weak to confront his sons at the level that they deserved and needed. He was too weak to actually remove them from the priesthood and protect God's sanctuary. So, this is a dark situation. You have a corrupt priesthood that is corrupting the worship of the people during a very dark period in Israel's history, and out of nowhere enters a man of God in chapter 2, verse 27. This man of God is not named for us. He's never identified by name. We don't know who he is. It doesn't appear that he was a man of any particular renown or influence or leadership. He was likely a prophet who lived on the margins of this wicked society. But he is a reminder to us that God always has his faithful servants out there. No matter what is happening in this world, God's faithful servants will be there quietly doing his work. And that's what this man does. He comes to Eli, and he rebukes Eli directly. And he foretells to Eli a judgment that is to come. In his rebuke, notice what he says, particularly in verse 29. Why then do you scorn? This is is the Lord speaking through the prophet. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? By fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. There may be a subtle hint there. Eli, who we will find out later, was a heavy man. Eli may have been benefiting, even though he wouldn't steal the meat himself. He may have personally benefited from the meat that was stolen and fattened himself. On the Lord's offerings. But more than that, we know for sure that Eli honored his sons above the Lord by allowing them to continue to defile the holy place. Concerning this passage, the commentator Dale Ralph Davis writes this prophecy against Eli emphasizes that you can end up in grave sin by thinking it very important to be nice to people. How easy it is to practice a gutless compassion that never wants to offend anyone, that equates niceness with love, and thereby ignores compassion that never wants to, uh, I'm sorry, ignores God's law and essentially despises his holiness. We do not necessarily seek God's honor when we spare human feelings. And that is a word that cuts deep today. Because we live in an age when human feelings have become the standard for how we determine what is right and wrong. But in the Scripture, that is not the case. God's law is the standard. And yes, we should be winsome and sensitive, but at the end of the day, if we put feelings above the law of God, we are not loving anyone. Eli failed here and he failed to his own detriment. The prophet goes on to tell Eli, your house is going to experience a catastrophic fall. Your descendants are going to be removed from the priesthood, cut down and marginalized in Israel. Now, this doesn't mean that every single descendant of Eli will be destroyed, but the house of Eli as a whole is going to be removed from any position of prominence. And if you go on to read, that actually does happen in the book of 1 Samuel and in 1 Kings. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, you can read about an occasion when Saul, mad with rage against David, goes to the city of Nob, and there he slaughters the priests who are at the city. Many of these would have been descendants of Eli. And how one of those priests, Abiathar, escaped, and Abiathar was a faithful servant of David. But when it came time for succession of David's kingdom, Abiathar aligned with David's son Adonijah against King Solomon. And so Abiathar, the descendant of Eli, when Solomon comes into power and secures his reign, is then exiled from the priesthood. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, we are told that this happened in fulfillment of this very prophecy we have here. Abiathar, the descendant of Eli, is marginalized and then removed. But in place, God is going to raise up a new priest. Look at verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. You might be tempted to think that that's a prophecy of Samuel. And of course, Samuel did engage in some priestly functions, but this doesn't appear to be a prophecy of Samuel uh, because Samuel doesn't fit the description of having a house built, whether that referred to a line of priests that would come from him or perhaps to the temple that would be built later as a house for the Lord where the priests would serve the much more fitting fulfillment of verse 35 is the priest Zadok. He became high priest in the place of Abiathar and served both under King David and then under King Solomon. And he is the one who would witness the house of the Lord, the temple being built in Jerusalem, and he would establish a priesthood that would serve there in that temple before the Lord's anointed one, the king. And so this prophecy is showing us that God is going to fulfill His promises to Abraham. He is going to fulfill His word about Abraham's earthly descendants. He is going to establish them as a well-ordered nation, a people who are united in the worship of God under the leadership of an anointed king and served by a faithful priest. Though it looks like that might never happen given the, the appearances at the time of Eli, God is tenacious, and He's going to make sure it does happen. Unbelievers will sometimes object to the Christian faith uh, with a number of of different arguments. One of the most common is what's called the problem of evil. The argument is, if, if God is all good and all powerful, then why does He allow evil to continue in this world? And why does He allow it to be so wretched? And so extreme as we see going on in this world. And then other times unbelievers might say, well, I'm not a Christian because I see so many hypocrites in the church. If you think about it, both of those arguments are at root the same thing. Both of those arguments are saying, at the root of all things, they're saying, God is not really holy. Because if he were, he would either eliminate the evil that's in this world or he would eliminate the evil that's rampant among his own people. But the fact that that evil is there and I can see it, that's my argument now to assume that God is not really holy. But according to the Scripture, God is holy. Holy. And the answer to the problem of evil, the answer to the problem of hypocrisy, there's so much we could go into there, but at one level, the answer is very simple. God is going to deal with the evil that is in this world. God is going to deal with the evil that is among His own people. You can be sure of it. His timeline is not the same as ours. That's the only difference. But make no mistake about it, God is is holy. And according to chapter 2, verse 30, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. When you think of the holiness of God, this is how you should, should understand it in your mind. It simply means this. God is always true to Himself. No matter what, God will always be true to Himself. Whatever you witness in this world that makes you think otherwise, never doubt the truth that God is holy. And He will defend His holy place. He will have a faithful priest in Israel. A second truth then about Israel I want to note here is this. God's Word will not be extinguished he will have a faithful prophet. God's word will not be extinguished. He will have a faithful prophet. Throughout chapter 2, interwoven with these images of Hophni and Phineas ruining the worship at the holy place, we have little snapshots of something else going on. That's all they are, are little snapshots and hints, but I want to run through them with you so you can see the pattern that emerges in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, that's Samuel, his, Elkanah's uh, son, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. There's the boy beginning to serve at the tabernacle. Look at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. He's like a mini-priest serving there at the tabernacle. In the following verses, we, we tell his parents goodbye. That's their last appearance in the book of 1 Samuel. But it mentions that Elkanah and his wife Hannah go back to their home, and it says that the Lord blessed them. He gave to Hannah three sons and two daughters after Samuel was born. If you remember last week's message, let that be an encouragement to you that you can never outgive God. Hannah, who consecrated her desire to the Lord and giving her first son to Him, received abundantly beyond all that she could imagine as the Lord's blessing upon her. But Elkanah and Hannah are now gone from the story and the focus is now on their son Samuel. If you look again at verse 21, At the end of the verse, it says, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Skip down to verse 26. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. You see these little hints dotting chapter 2, reminding us God is doing something. It's very quiet. It's very out of the way, but God is up to something with this boy. And then the story uh, gets very interesting, beginning in chapter 3, where we come to a decisive moment. Notice first in chapter 3, verse 1, the author's comment about the condition of Israel at the time. It says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now what that means is God did not speak to Israel very often through prophets, during this time. He did not reveal his visions to prophets to deliver messages to the people. Why not? Because God was cutting them off because of their sin. The silence of God is an indication of judgment. And the lack of prophetic vision in Israel is an indication that God is almost done speaking. Almost. That's the key. For as the story goes on to tell us in chapter 3... The word of the Lord returns to Israel, and it returns in the form of a voice that calls to Samuel in the middle of the night. The boy Samuel, I imagine him as a 12-year-old boy at this time, sleeping in the tabernacle with Eli's room not far off, and he hears a voice call to him, Samuel. And according to verse 7 of chapter 3, Samuel does not know the Lord at this time. He doesn't know who's calling. He assumes it's Eli. So he runs to Eli's room, and he says, here I am, for you called me. Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. So he does. And again it happens, and he runs to Eli, the same result. And then again it happens, and he runs to Eli with the same result. And by this time, Eli figures out what is going on. And Eli tells Samuel what to do. And so the fourth time when Samuel hears the voice call to him, Samuel, Samuel. His reply is, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And it tells us the Lord came and stood before him in some kind of visible presence and spoke to him directly and gave him this prophetic word about the house of Eli. This word was simply a reaffirmation of what had been told uh, to Eli by the unnamed man of God in chapter 2, that God was shortly going to act to bring down the house of Eli of Eli. So Samuel becomes a prophet on this occasion. He becomes one who receives and then delivers the word of the Lord. Now notice where the story goes from there in chapter 3, verse 19. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now what does that mean? It means that Samuel is speaking true prophetic words. He is speaking the very words of the Lord, and that is why none of them fall to the ground. None of them fail. All of his predictions come true. All of his prophetic words are absolutely uh, authoritative and infallible because they come from God. And he is God's mouthpiece in this prophetic ministry. And the result then in verses 20 and 21 tell us, And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now there's an interesting parallel in chapter 4, verse 1a that we read, where it it says, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. There's an interesting parallel with something the author said before. The ESV obscures it just a little bit, but it's still there. You can see it. So uh, if you look back, you you saw that Samuel's word goes to all Israel in chapter 4. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 14, look at the end of the verse. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, it's obscured a little bit, but the, the Hebrew is exactly the same as chapter 4, verse 1. This is what they did to all Israel. Samuel's word came to all Israel. I think what the author's telling us with that same wording is that Samuel's influence in his prophetic ministry now comes to match exactly what Hophni and Phinehas had done in corrupting the worship of the people. It's an encouraging way for the author to say, God is beginning to undo the damage. And God's word is now returning to prominence among his people. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses had said to Israel, knowing that his death was imminent, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From among your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Moses had prophesied that a prophet would arise like him, in his place, holding his influence and leadership. Now, this is not a a prophecy that's fulfilled in any single prophet who comes uh, to Israel. That that is, for example, the man of God mentioned in chapter 2. He's a prophet of the Lord, but he's not a prophet like Moses. That is, he's not a national leader. He's not one with influence over all the nation or, or any kind of institutional authority like Moses had. Uh, he's on the margins and many of the prophets are on the margins. They, they prophesy during wicked times and so they're pushed to the margins. But Moses is saying the Lord is going to raise up a prophet and I believe that's fulfilled in a succession of prophets like Moses. National leaders who bring the word of the Lord to the mainstream of Israel and have widespread influence over the nation. Samuel brings that to fulfillment here. The contrast then between the unnamed man of God in chapter 2 and Samuel is not that one speaks any less the Word of God than the other, it's that one of them is on the margins, the other one has brought the Word of God to the mainstream again. Now that's very encouraging. It's an encouraging story and it encourages me to take heart and to remind myself that the Word of God will never be extinguished from this world. Never. The Word of God will not fail. As dark as times may get, God will never allow the light of His truth to go out. Even think back to the darkest period in history imaginable. Think of the days of Noah when only eight people in the world knew God. Eight people. Out of all the multitudes who lived at that time, eight people knew God. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The word of the Lord was not extinguished. It continued. And because the word of the Lord will not be extinguished from the earth, the church of God will never be extinguished from the earth. Jesus said in Matthew sixteen eighteen. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That promise should assure you that if you belong to a church, a church that is the manifestation of the church of Jesus Christ, every church in a a particular place represents the whole church of Christ throughout the world. If you belong to a church, you belong to. To the one institution on earth that is invincible. Now, any given church may fail and die, but the church of Jesus Christ will never fail. It will prevail through all the ups and downs because our God is tenacious. He will maintain His word in this world. Now, what do we do with these points that are largely about the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham? with the future of Israel in that day. How do we now apply that to our lives? Well, that brings me to my third point here. Jesus Christ is our great high priest and final prophet. Jesus Christ is our great high priest and final prophet. What we see in this text with the imminent fall of Eli's house with the raising up of Samuel to be a prophet of the Lord, to, to take on leadership of Israel when Eli falls. What we see with the prophetic word about a coming faithful priest, Zadok, who will serve under God's anointed, is a picture of what's to come and be fulfilled in the books of First and Second Samuel. And then in the book of First Kings. For shortly we will read that David will become king in Israel. David will bring victory over Israel's enemies. David will bring order to this nation. David will establish Jerusalem as the capital. David will unify the people in the worship of the one true God. And then David is going to hand over to his son Solomon a kingdom that is well established, that is peaceful, that is prosperous. And when we get to 1 Kings Solomon is reigning over a kingdom that is the high point of the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. Solomon reigns over a peaceful, prosperous kingdom of Israel where God's worship is centralized at the temple that He builds in Jerusalem. So all these things are still to come. All these things will be fulfilled, but Even that kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham's earthly descendants, that kingdom is itself a type of something better. That kingdom is a foreshadowing of something greater to come because after the time of Solomon, we're going to see that kingdom begin to tear apart. It's going to divide into north and south, and there's going to be a succession of rulers most of them wicked, leading the people into idolatry. And eventually, both of the kingdoms will be sent into exile. The glorious temple Solomon will build in Jerusalem will be uh, smashed to rubble. And the house of David ultimately is going to fail. When all of that happens, is there still hope for God's promises? Yes. Because, you see, God didn't just make promises to Abraham regarding his earthly descendants. He did, but those promises were always meant to give us a picture of something better to come. Because God also promised to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You will not only have earthly descendants who establish a kingdom that will be glorious But that will point forward to the spiritual descendants you will have, the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith throughout the world who will make up the population of a new kingdom to come. And the New Testament calls that the kingdom of God. John the Baptist proclaimed it, that it was near. Jesus proclaimed it, that it was near in His coming. And what do we see when Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament. We see him going to the holy place and cleansing it. Jesus in other words is the anti-Eli. He is the faithful high priest over the holy place who defends the holiness of God's name and the purity of the worship of the true God. He is himself the temple. The one who said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he's speaking about his own body. For he had become the very meeting place between God and man. He is the exalted Lord who now rules over the temple of God in this world. You know where the temple of God is located now. In addition to the right hand of the Father. It's located here. It's located in Lehi, Utah this morning. It's located in Plattsburgh, New York. It's located wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the temple of God. That is where holy worship of the Lord is now happening. What else does the New Testament tell us about Christ? It tells us in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 that though formerly God had spoken to our fathers by the prophets, in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son. And what that tells us is we've reached the climactic moment of prophecy. We've reached the point at which God has said all that He intends to say. In the Deuteronomy 18 prophet kind of sense, Jesus is the fulfillment of that text. And that's why, as the greatest and final revelation of God, and once that revelation was committed to writing by His apostles and put into the New Testament for us, we do not have any further prophetic revelation in that Deuteronomy 18 sense to expect. That's why when fools like Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, come along, And they say, I have a new revelation from God to add to what's come before. Everything else that's come before has either been corrupted or lost. But I've got something new from the Lord. When someone comes along making those claims, we have the very witness of the Scripture itself. No, in these last days, God has spoken by His Son. His final prophet has come. The New Testament has been written as a testimony to Him and the canon of Scripture is closed, there is no more that God is going to say. And so with Christ we see there is no more a hereditary priesthood. There is no more a succession of institutional prophets like Moses. And yet there is a sense in which all of us who are in Christ are priests in Him. We share in what is called the priesthood of all believers. And there's a sense in which we are prophets in Him. Lesser known term, but it has been used. The prophethood of all believers. I believe both of these things are true biblically. Now, what would that mean for us to be priests and prophets in Christ? With regard to priesthood, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ welcomed into the holy place. We are given access to the temple where we serve the Lord in worship. What would it mean for us to be prophets? It would mean that we have the ability through the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures to speak God's truth to this world, to declare God's gospel to the nations. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4.11, those who speak using their gifts are to speak as those speaking the very oracles of God. Now, it would be very easy for us to take these very familiar biblical terms, priest and prophet, and let them roll off our our brains like water off a duck's back. Just let let it not sink in what that actually means. But I want to ask you to think about that this morning. What does it really mean if you are in Christ... To say that you share in his priesthood and that you share in his prophethood. Fundamentally, I think it means this you are an insider with God. You have been welcomed into his very home, his family. He doesn't hold you at a distance, he doesn't keep you on the outside. There is no veil anymore to keep you out. That veil was torn and Jesus gave us access to the Father through the Spirit where we gather to worship as priests in His holy place, where we gather to speak words that are through the Holy Spirit for the edification of one another to represent God's gospel to the world. I want you to understand how incredibly privileged you are if that is true of you to be an insider with God. So you see, the tenacity of God in this story points us where all Scripture ultimately points us, and that is to Christ, to Jesus Christ. And it tells us, once again, embrace Him by faith as our high priest and as God's final revelation to man. So the next time you face discouragement over the condition of this world or over the sad condition so many times of God's own people, or even your own sufferings and failures. Fix your attention once again on Jesus Christ and say this, it's going to be okay. My God is tenacious. Amen. I'm going to invite you to come now to the table. And the way we're going to come in just a few moments is beginning with overflow and front row here, coming from the outside of the aisles. You'll just come by the table, grab one cup that has both the bread and uh, the juice in it, two cups stacked together, that is, and uh, just return to the inside to your seats. We'll do that here in just a moment. I want to extend the invitation first. And our invitation to you is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, who's professed your faith publicly, and you are a member in good standing with the church, that you're welcome to come and eat and drink with us as a declaration of your faith once again. Now, if that's not true of you, uh, if you're not a believer in Christ, we just ask you to abstain this morning. And here's why. Because for you to eat and drink would be to eat and drink judgment on yourself. We want you to profess faith in Christ, to be baptized first, and then you can partake with us. But I want to speak to you, if you're not a believer, just a reminder of what uh, God said through the prophet in verse 30. Those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. If you are not trusting in the Son of God to deliver you from your sins, that is first and foremost how you are dishonoring God today. Those who honor God, He will honor, but those who despise Him will be lightly esteemed. Do not despise the Lord's grace that's been given to you. Receive Him in faith, and then we'd be happy to baptize you and then welcome you to the table after that. If you are a believer this morning, uh, and we, we welcome you to come, we, we ask that uh, you would do so in faith once again trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as we do every Sunday in remembering His death and resurrection for us. So take a moment of silence right now uh, to meditate on the truth that's been proclaimed, uh, to, to confess any sin you may have to God and need to repent of, to once again put your trust in Christ and to prepare yourself to come to the table. So let's take a moment.